Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Informed Catholic Podcast. My name is Nechabar, so let's open up with a prayer, please. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let's recite the Apostles' Creed, which is the article of our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered unto Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. St. Joseph, Guardian of the Church, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Holy Servant of God, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, pray for us. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us from evil. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our passage of scripture for this uh, podcast episode of the Informed Catholic will be from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, starting from verse 13 down to verse 20, Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ. So let's begin. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The gospel of the Lord praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to review, um, for this podcast episode, uh, the Netflix is, uh, two popes. I saw the movie the other day and, um, well, first I'm going to do is I'm going to read an article from church militant. um, it's um, by Martin M. Barillas and Pete Belinsky, uh, Paklinski. Hope I'm pronouncing their names correctly. Um, it's um, 
It's an article, uh, Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. So uh, I saw the movie, but I'm going to read the article first, and then I'm going to give you my review of the film. So let's start. Rome, December 17th, 2019. This article is actually from LifeSite News. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Not Church Militant. LifeSite News. I apologize. A Vatican-owned building just steps away from St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is hosting a billboard-sized ad for a Netflix film that portrays Benedict XVI as an incompetent pope who looked to the man who would become pope, that is, Pope Francis, as the one chosen by God to change the church. Due for online release on December 20th by Netflix, the two popes is advertised as a giant on a giant billboard displayed on a building that is reportedly owned by the Vatican on the Via della Consolenzano at the gates leading to St. Peter's Square. uh, Cindy Wooden of Catholic News Service released a photo of the billboard on social media with the caption advertising on Vatican owned building Netflix, the two popes. A blurb released by Netflix about the film states, at a key turning point for the Catholic Church, Pope Benedict XVI forms a surprising friendship with the future Pope Francis, inspired by true events. Okay, on the on a clue to the plot states, behind Vatican walls, the, con- the conservative Pope Benedict and the liberal future Pope Francis must find common ground to forge a new path for the Catholic Church. A preview for the film shows Pope Benedict, played by Anthony Hopkins, saying that he, as Pope, was in need of correction. There is a saying, God always corrects one Pope by presenting the world with another Pope. I should like to see my own, my corrections, he states. At another moment, Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict, speaking to Cardinal Jorge Bogorio, the man who would become Pope Francis, states, you are the right person. The church needs needs to change, and you could be that change. Reform needs a politician, Bogorio states. Pope Benedict XVI resigned on February 11, 2013. Cardinal Jorge Bogorio was elected for the following on the following month and became Pope Francis. The film was released in the U.S. and U.K. cinemas at the end of November. It is based on a screenwriter Anthony McCartan's 2017 play, The Pope. It has been nominated for four Golden Globe Awards. Despite Netflix's affirmation of some bassist in history, Professor Juan Orlena, who is the director of the uh, who is the director of the film department of the Conference of Spanish Bishops, said, it is a make-believe film if it were not based on facts and real people, and there was not more than enough documentation, he would say, that it is a beautiful and emotive film, but it's not real. Orlana, who teaches cinematography at a Spanish university, told El Confidentials of Spain that director Fernando Morales did not bother to learn Benedict's personal characteristics, nor does he try to reflect his personality. 
All right, so Fernando Morales is the director of the film. Professor Orlana analyzed the message conveyed by the two popes to be one in which the former cardinal Jorge Bogorio is posed as a good church, uh, as good church because of his reputed friendliness and reformed agenda, while Pope Benedict is in is an unrecognizable figure, obsessed by homosexual marriage, denying holy communion to the divorced, and with maintaining certain formal customs. Moreover, Orleana told El Confidencial that the film does nothing to illustrate Pope Benedict's refined theology, his inquisitive intellectual abilities, inquisite sensibility, nor is refined education. The film, he said, depicts Benedict as a harsh, burlesque man who has no friends. Orlana said that, even worse than that, the film portrays Benedict resigning the papacy because of God's supposed silence. Nothing could be further from the truth, said Orlana. Moreover, Orlana told Carvedenchel that the film does not nothing to illustrate Pope Benedict's refined theology. Okay, I'm sort of repeating myself here, sorry. According to Orlana, it is Francis who is purportedly manages to humanize the retiring Benedict in the film. As for director Morales, he is a Catholic but attends mass, mass infrequently. He told La Vanguardia of Spain that he sees himself as a Francis defender and feels closer to him than to Benedict. A Brazilian, Marcellus said that, the, that Francis understands the common home. In a reference to a terminology used during the Amazonian Synod of October to underscore envi en environmentalist issues, all the leaders of the world are building walls, Morales said, while he is offering bridges. In a reference to the current Pope's criticism of President Trump's immigration policy, reportedly the Vatican did not cooperate with the filming of the two popes, nor was it shot on Vatican grounds. All right, that ends the article. That really ends it right there. So, um, we're going to start with uh, my own personal review of it. So, I'll get back to you. Okay, so let's start my review of The Two Popes, the Netflix Two Popes. So, um, it's a cute, it was a cute depiction meaning because when you see the two popes together uh sitting down watching a soccer game or a football game as some people would call it in Europe and South America it's kind of cute but uh it is unevenly handed uh handled that is it shows you it's there, there's sympathy to one pope and not very much sympathy to the other there is more character depth to one pope which is Pope Francis, and not much depth to the Pope Benedict character. Um, and that, I feel, was unfair. It, it showed the, the, um, the bias and prejudice of both the writer and the director. Uh, you get much of, um, of uh, Pope uh, Francis's history his youth, his uh, call to the priesthood, the vocation, 
there's a scene uh, where it shows you his uh, a flashback, and it's in black and white, uh, where uh, he was supposed to go on a date, uh, and he wound up walking inside a church and mysteriously meeting a priest who uh, keeps insisting on him entering the confessional. And he feels that from that time, that that was a sign. He was asking for a sign from God whether he should become a priest. And and it was a random meeting, which I kind of thought was kind of nice. It was kind of like a, a mystical experience. <clears throat> but you don't get that anything similar to the character of Pope Benedict. In the beginning of the film, there's a scene where, where, where Anthony Hopkins playing Pope Benedict is in prayer and he puts out a candle and he's troubled. He's very, he, he looks anxious, uh, troubled because we learn that he feels that God has abandoned him, that he doesn't feel the presence of God, which is, which is a very abstract, um, abstract meaning, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't feel the presence of God. Faith is what you know and believe and love. Love is not always based on feeling. It's based on what you know. You cannot love what you do not know. And because he sees the smoke of the candle not rising up, going down, that he sees that as a sign that maybe God has abandoned him. We learn, we learn that later on about it. But then the thing is, you see someone like Jorge Bergoglio when he was a priest and head of the Jesuit order. We get another flashback later on where his felt, where the country of Argentina is under a horrible dictatorship where there's a lot of violence and a lot of uh, a, a torture going around and people randomly taken by the government and not seen ever again. And he's trying to protect people. That is Jorge Bergoglio, Father Bergoglio, trying to protect people from, um, uh, from you know, being reckless. And there was a, a mission, a place where people were hiding with a bunch of Jesuits. And he's trying to collect as much stuff to hide any evidence of Marxism or of, uh, of socialism writing. He's trying to put them away or, you know, hide them so that people will not be um, accused by the, you know, the government. And they look at him as a traitor because they feel that he has made a compromise with the dictator, the government. It's, it's a very complex part of the story that you have to watch. Eventually the mission gets found out and many of the people get round up and thrown into into trucks and taken someplace. And then we see what looks like the government trying to cover its tracks with bodies. There's a scene where they inject people with something, I'm guessing poison, and then they're throwing them, their bodies off the plane into the ocean. It's, just, it's, it's, it's very, um, a very heathenistic sort of thing. And what happened was some of the uh, people didn't want him around and for, uh, anymore. He was persona non grata. He was removed from the, Jes the head of the Jesuit order, and he was sent off to the mountains for many years to live among the poor, sort of like an act of penance. And because uh, 
you know, in my opinion, I think is rather twisted because this this part begins to show where Jorge Bergoglio, um, in a sense, his as a Jesuit, it turns out he kept a lot of the Marxist books. The scene shows you for the next couple of years, he was reading Marxist material. So instead of going deeper into church teaching, into church, into the, into, into the teachings of the church, into the teachings of Thomas Aquinas, into the teachings of St. Augustine, into the teachings of Ambrose and Athanasius and all other great church thinkers, the greatest minds of the church, he went into the depth of Marxist and, and political writings. And this shows you how his mindset began to feel sympathy more for the revolutionaries of the world. This is where remember remember that part where he um he was talking to uh Eugenio Scafari. There was an interview where Scafari printed where Francis said that it's the it's the Marxists or the socialists, the communists, who think like Christians more. So you see, this shows you his mindset. Excuse me. This begins to show you his mindset, how it began to change, how it began to, um, he began to sort of like trying to sanctify uh, the revolutionaries, canonize the revolutionaries rather than run to the run to the teachings of the church and this is probably the time where he where he began to be a liberal jesuit now in a sense it gives me better understanding because this is more out of guilt i think this is my own personal um uh assessment of it this is more this is how he began to sort of invertly change things he took things from the outside and he sanctified them. And he began to scrutinize and criticize the teachings of the church more. And that's what I feel. This is this is this is the man we got today. Now, did we get anything like this on the part of Pope Benedict in the movie? Nothing. Nothing of his flashback, nothing of his of his of his background, nothing of his youth. We get a little bit uh, more, like I said, when he was a young man, he was thinking of a vocation of on Francis' side, Borgorio's side, and we also we see that he was in love. He was in love with a young woman. He was thinking marriage. This is where, this is where you know we get more depth, character depth, character buildup. We get nothing like that on Benedict. As a matter of fact. There's a scene in the film where some guy, I think it's real footage, real footage from the past, where someone called him a Nazi pope. And he walks away with a smear, a, a sneer, a laugh. It, it, I, I'm going to take a guess. This is, uh, you know, um, someone uh, who obviously did this for shock reasons, but it was rather very... Um, let me put it this way, teasing uh, uh, rather, it was just very silly. It was just very silly and I think also disgusting. 
but this this the writer the author and the writer just wanted to show how negative his papacy was they didn't bother to show you how in deeply intellectual he was how deeply uh um how he seek god and how he he why he he holds on to tradition we don't get that we don't get that at all instead we get a, a very european man um who is who who they wanted to make distant who they didn't bother to understand people called him a nazi the reason why they called him nazi when in his youth when he was growing up at the time he was forced into the nazi youth movement like all the children of germany they were forced into the nazi youth movement they had no choice all right they had no choice just like a lot of the people uh, most likely in argentina had no choice in in some manners okay some people maybe have the ability to uh to go into a revolution but guess what you make a choice, you go to the revolution, you made a choice, and also it usually winds up in failure. And sometimes you also wind up costing the lives of other people. You know, you wind up, there's consequences. Revolution is a consequence. And a lot of people don't seem to understand that. They just don't seem to comprehend that. You know, you know, you have to realize there are there are some people who don't have the ability to fight they have family members they have children but most people who are revolutionaries sometimes are selfish people they're selfish people they're people with deep selfishness and also ego and vanity yes there is injustice but there's there are ways to fight. There are different ways you can fight injustice. There's different ways you can resist injustice. And without costing the lives of many people. But there are some people who are too hot-headed. And they don't realize they could wind up hurting a lot of people. There's different ways to fight. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to say that... Um, they were wrong, but in the end, you got to look at the body count and you have to ask yourself if it, was, if it was worth it. Now, like I said, there were cute scenes. Um, what happened was, what exactly, how does the film uh, bring them together? Well, it brings them together from the first conclave after John... Paul II's passing. They show um, <clears throat> the two of them encountered each other in the uh, men's room. Um, uh, Jorge Bergoglio is humming a tune from ABBA. He likes, he's, he, they're showing how hip he is. He's familiar with modern music. Um, there's a scene uh, where uh, it shows campaigning the cardinals are sort of campaigning of who which you know in a sense they don't try to really show tell everybody they're campaigning from themselves but they're showing you that he obviously wants that that throne to peter that is benedict wants that throne to peter <clears throat> and there's um 
they're showing you uh, that Bogorio, Pope Francis, is a very humble man, doesn't want to become Pope. There was, uh, there was showing you some men were telling him that he should be Pope and he's telling them not to. Um, eventually, Benedict got the title. Uh, that is Ratzinger, who became Benedict, got the title. Then it shows you somehow years later, but it's showing you uh, Francis walking around the streets of Argentina, uh, talking to people, joking with people, teasing people, uh, that he's a man of the people. He doesn't sleep in the the, the archbishop's palace, uh, that he sleeps in a, in a, you know, in a small apartment. It's, you know, there, there's a saying among the Jesuits that they have uh, a false a false sense of humility. They they have a false humility. They overdo it. They overdo it in a sense because when they try to be humble, their thinking is not humble. Their actions are not humble. That they're they're rat because meaning because they're radicals. They're revolutionaries. And that's usually what attracts people about them because of the contradiction. So what happens is eventually he wants to resign he wants to retire. Now, not retire, resign. I'm sorry. He wants to retire and not be a um, a cardinal anymore. He's not 75 yet. He's still young. Uh, so, uh, according to, um, he goes to, he's called to Rome and he's meets the Pope at his summer residence. I don't remember the name. And the two of them, sort of uh, have a duel with each other, a, a challenge. Uh, uh, Francis uh, is accused by Benedict as having uh, sort of like a, um, what do you call it? Uh, criticisms. He has criticisms against Pope Benedict. And Pope Benedict sort of like questions him about some of his radical views um, on... Uh, on the priesthood, on uh, marriage, communion for marriage, divorce, uh, his views on homosexuals, and it shows the the film actually I think is honest about Jorge Bogorio, Pope Francis's um, revolutionary liberal views. He doesn't really seem to be a man who holds uh, many many supernatural beliefs. He seems to be one who holds beliefs out of uh, respect for the faith, but not from views of the faith as supernatural, which matches Scafari's interviews. I have to say this. It really does seem to match Scafari's interviews. Morales did say in the article that he is a Francis defender. And this film is coming from a man who's not exactly... A, a a serious practicing Catholic, he goes to mass infrequently, not daily. So it has those, it has that view. But another thing, it shows them becoming cute friends, which in a sense is to try to tone down the criticism, tone down the, the whole thing. Now, in other words, there's no, there's no serious problems uh, they they eat pizza together. They uh, they talk. You know, they shows them as uh, you know uh, you know they're sitting down and talking. They're comparing each other's conversion, but there's nothing on Pope Benedict's background. The film is uneven. 
It doesn't show you any flashbacks of his youth. It doesn't, ex- it doesn't try to explain or go why people call him the Nazi Pope. But it does also try to show, uh, show that Benedict did not handle sex abuse crisis as well as he should have about the Marciaro Marciaro, which goes back actually to, to Pope John Paul II. Mar- you know, I mean, there's a lot, you know, I, I think it's just unfair. It's unfair to Benedict, but it should give us a little bit more detail. Because here's the thing, the film doesn't tell you that Francis, Pope Jorge Bergoglio mishandled something. What about the recent uh, bishop that he took out of Argentina and put him in the in the Vatican who was accused of sexual abuse? I mean, there's a, Francis hasn't gone back to uh, Argentina since he became Pope. You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of mishandling. There's a lot of uneven, unfair assessment. That's why you have to know things. You have to be informed about the background of a pope, what it is. Yes, I remember a friend of mine, he told me, uh, this is to my friend Henry Artis, that popes don't have to be impeccable. Impeccability is not a requirement. They can make mistakes. It's not a requirement for infallibility. Infallibility when it comes to the faith, the teaching of the faith. But impeccability, yes, these men can make mistakes. And we have to remember that. We see that in the Gospels, how uh, Peter denied our Lord three times, took a sword out, attacked a man, tried to chop a man's head off instead of cut off his ear. Uh, you know, uh, the apostles all ran, all ran and abandoned, abandoned our Lord, abandoned him. We have to remember that these things, are, you know, it's not perfect. They're not perfect. They're not perfect men. And not, the Gospels go out of this way to show us they're not perfect. And remember our Lord himself on the uh, after the resurrection. Simon, do you love me? Three times. Do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. Our Lord is well aware that these men can be weak. And we are all sinners. We are all weak. And we always have to, like the, like the imitation of Christ says, remember to remind yourself, none so much more weak than yourself. Anyway, um, that's gonna, this is gonna, I'm going to end my uh, review here. Because really, if you want to check it out, you could check it out. But I know there's a controversy about Netflix because they put out a very blasphemous film on, the, um, on Christ, a comedy Brazilian movie called The First Temptation of Christ, to sort of play on The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, the film by Cousin Zaka, uh, not, not, not a film, but a book. Scorsese actually did it as a movie a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of decades ago, called The Last Temptation of Christ, based on the book by Nikos Cousin Zakas, uh, a Greek writer, atheist, um, Again, another socialist. <laughs> uh, all artists uh, seem like they want to become socialists or communists and stuff like that. But anyway, this movie uh, is cute, but shouldn't be taken seriously. It's not a serious uh, depiction of, of, of these men's character. Partly true, 
art is always sometimes partly true, not fully true completely, uh, unless it has uh, it's backed up by a lot of reviews, critics. Uh, the reason why I'm doing this is because I know a lot of people are going to think that what they see, I know this because I, I, I work with people, they're going to think it's true. That's true. It's not true. They have to remember that. There's a lot of people who like Pope Francis. I remember a lot of them happen to be artists and they want to believe because they have an attraction towards Jesuits because Jesuits tend to be very radical uh, but they don't really understand. Um, they take them out of the context of the faith and they don't understand that, um, you know, unfortunately that what you see may not be what you really want to see. You know, it's always, uh, only the, the rebellion they're attracted to, not the obedience of faith, because this person, remember, is a member of the Catholic church. He's a priest. And priests are obviously have taken a vow, and a vow of obedience to the faith. And unfortunately, um, a lot of people don't really, uh, who are outside the church, don't understand that. I'm not going to watch the film "The First Temptation of Christ." Um, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to look into what other people say, and I know there's a lot of people calling to uh, end the uh, Netflix Netflix subscription to let Netflix feel it. And I'm going to do that, actually. I'm going to uh, end my uh, uh, membership to Netflix because I do feel that they have to, they have to really think about it. I mean, why would you put a mockery of someone's faith and put it out during, even, even during the holiday, it doesn't matter whether it's the holidays or any time of the year. It doesn't matter what time of the year. It doesn't matter if it's Christmas, Easter, or ordinary time, whatever you want to call it. You got to think carefully. Why does the Christian faith always has to be attacked? They know that Christians are not going to go wrap bombs around themselves and blow themselves up because that's not part of the Christian faith. So you know that you will, you will not get violently attacked. But if you did it because of Islam, if you attack the Prophet Muhammad, if you attack their, their pillar, their monument of their faith, the man who they, they look to, you know you're going to get a violent attack. So why can't you do something good to obviously you know, you know, call Christians over, put more Christian programming? Put more positive Christian movies or something. Why do you have to attack them? Why do you have to insult them? And take their, their faith for granted. Why? It's, you know, it, this is the problem. So yes, um, I think Netflix needs to feel it. Uh, I think they need to feel it for a, for a while. Give them, uh, and I think they do need to make an apology. They should make an apology. You know, it's, you know, I think a lot of time, a lot of times they really need to know this. I mean, think about it. You know, now this is uh, the, the age of the streaming wars. Uh, now with, uh, you're going to have Disney, you're going to have Netflix. 
uh, writing a protest, signing a protest is not going to help. Somebody said this the other day on YouTube. The, the dollar is their God. The dollar speaks to them. Uh, 10 million uh, signatures don't make a difference. 10 million people canceling their subscription, which is $12 or $14 a person, will make them feel it. Trust me, it will. And so canceling your subscription and making them feel it, making them get hurt will help. This is not a time that they, they want to lose people, especially when you got Disney now putting out its Disney Plus and you got Amazon and you got other people. Now, yes, they're all going to put out insulting, insulting uh, films. Unfortunately, that can't be helped, but they need to feel it. All right, so I'm going to end this podcast now, and um, it's uh, we're going to look at it here, pick out a prayer. Okay, prayer to Christ the King. O Christ Jesus, I acknowledge thee, King of the universe. All that has been created has been made for thee. Exercise over me all thy sovereign rights. I renew the promises of my baptism. I renounce Satan and all his works and all his pomps and promises to live a good Christian life and to do all in my power to procure the triumph of the rights of God and, the, and his holy church. Divine heart of Jesus, I offer thee my poor efforts in, in order to obtain that all hearts may acknowledge thy sacred royalty and that thou that thou, the kingdom of thy peace may be established throughout the universe. Amen. Glory be to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.